Father, thank you for your word, living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Speak to us this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, I don't know if you've ever played that game, um, Guess Who? Uh, we've, it was one of our children's favourites. You have like 20, um, 20 little tiles in front of you with lots of different faces on, and they're all slightly different. Some are wearing glasses, and some, are wearing, some have got beards and moustaches and big eyes and little eyes and long hair and short hair. And uh, by process of asking lots of questions, you have to establish who you're... So, so one of you, two of, you play it in a pair, and one of you picks one of the 20 and you hide it, and the other person has to work out who you have picked simply by asking questions. So are they wearing glasses? And if they're not, then you, you basically you eliminate all the tiles until you've got to the one. And that's how you work out who somebody is. You have to ask questions. You have to explore. You have to get to know them. And whether it's a game of guess who or whether it's finding a new friend, that's how you get to know who they are. And it's no different with discovering who Jesus is. You know, lots of people I um, sort of um, see making comments online about Jesus. I think, well, actually, you haven't really done your research because what you're reflecting, you don't, haven't really understood who Jesus is. You're kind of, you're making a reaction from your sort of preconceived ideas and assumptions that you've made, but you haven't actually done the work of research to discover, well, who, who actually was Jesus? And one of the things that we discovered last Sunday was that, uh, back in verse 17, there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. And one of the things that was kind of hidden and that was disclosed over time was the character and the nature of Jesus. And the disciples who spend this, who live alongside him, are trying to work out who he is. On day one of being called to follow Jesus, all they know is this is someone that we, we want to, we want, there's something deeply attractive about his life and we want to spend time with him and discover who he really is. But the disciples on day one, they don't really know much more than that and they discover as they go along. So at the end of our little reading this morning and this miraculous calming of the storm on the lake, uh, the disciples say, who is this? Who is this? He's done this amazing thing of calming a storm, but who who is he? They're trying to work it out. By the time we get to chapter 9 and verse 20, Jesus asks them straight out, who do you think I am? Probably the most important question that we have to find an answer to in this life. Essentially, essentially the life that we have on earth is one of discovering the answer to that question. And whether we kind of discover it or not determines our eternal destiny that's the most important question in the world. Who do we think Jesus is? And when Jesus asks them in chapter 9 and verse 20, Peter, who is in the boat, in the storm, and is with the others saying, well, who is this? By the grace of God and by the revelation of God, he understands for the first time who Jesus is. And he says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Messiah. You are God's chosen one. You're, you are the... Um, you're the saviour of the world, the one that we've been waiting for. So how is it that they've gone from, who is this, to you are the Christ? Well, it's because they watch what Jesus does and they understand what he does. And um, in the rest of chapter 8, there are four incidents that the gospel writers put together because they reveal a lot about who 
Jesus is. And if you were a good Jew, as the disciples were, and you were in the boat with Jesus, and you knew your Psalms, and you knew your Old Testament, when Jesus calms this storm that you are caught up in, you would immediately, bells would immediately be ringing because you would be thinking about Psalm 107. Because in Psalm 107, almost the exact same incident is described. But it's written hundreds of years before. Let me just read from Psalm 107, verses 23 to 30. This is what the psalmist writes. Some went out on the sea in ships. Uh, They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went away to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. It's a, you know, the, um, the, the parallels are, you know, are striking and unmissable with what we read in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. It's almost exactly the same thing. But this is the psalmist writing hundreds of years before and describing exactly the same thing. Their courage melted away. They were at their wit's end. They cried out to the Lord. He stilled the storm. The waves of the sea were hushed. It grew calm. He guided them to their desired haven. So if you are one of the disciples in the boat with Jesus and you know your psalms and you, 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 you think, oh, hang on a minute, we've read about this. This was written about hundreds of years before. You were going to think, well, in the psalm, who is it who calms the storm in the psalm? Well, in the psalm, it is the Lord God. It is Yahweh. It is Yahweh who calms the storm. So what conclusion are you going to come to as a disciple in the boat with Jesus when Jesus does the exact same thing? The conclusion you're going to draw is, hang on a minute, Jesus does what Yahweh does. Therefore, Jesus might be Yahweh. No wonder they are in fear and amazement when the penny starts to drop, because they know who Yahweh is. They know that he is the holy, almighty God of the universe. They know that he is uh, you know, this um, amazing God of the Old Testament, majestic beyond their imagination. They know that in the Old Testament, people know that to, you know, to see God face-to-face is almost a terrifying prospect. They say, well, to see God face-to-face, you can't live if you see God face-to-face because he is so holy and awesome. And they begin to realise that this Yahweh has been in the boat with them. This Yahweh has, is, he is the one that they are living with and spending time with. So it's when we look at what Jesus does when we look at what he says, it, we begin to understand, well, who he is. And because most of us are not good Jews and most of us don't know our Psalms as well as we might, we kind of, we miss that connection. But it's as clear as day and for the disciples, they wouldn't have missed it. They would have known this Psalm and they would have come to that conclusion. Which is why when we get to chapter 9 and verse 20, And Peter, by the grace and the revelation of God, has worked it out. Yes, Jesus, you are 
you are Yahweh. You are God's anointed one. You are the Messiah. So they begin to realise, and and through the rest of chapter 8, what we will discover is just more and more that that is who Jesus is. He is Yahweh. He has power and authority over every situation that you could imagine. But there's more to it than simply understanding and um, uh, getting to grips with the character and the nature and the identity of who Jesus is. The part of the point of the episode is discovering that when you're caught up in a storm, and when you're caught up in a situation that is out of your control, uh, you're not helpless and you're not hopeless. Uh, All of these incidents that we're going to look at in the rest of chapter 8 involve situations where people find themselves uh, in a, in in a, a time that they can do nothing about. It's a situation beyond their control, There's nothing that they can do. And in in every occasion, Jesus steps in and Jesus says something and the the whole situation is completely transformed. So part of what Jesus is teaching the disciples and part of the thing that they need to learn is that they have to start trusting him and start understanding that actually storms of life will come along. But even in the worst storms of life, there is someone that you can appeal to who is bigger than the storm. That's the point. And that's the great grace that we have in the Christian life, is that no matter what storm of life we may be caught up in, there's always someone bigger than the storm who we can know and who draws alongside us and who can speak into that storm and bring us into a place of peace. Right at the start, in verse 22, Jesus says to the disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. Let's go over to the other side of the lake. So Jesus has said something. He said, I'm going to the other side of the lake. And if Jesus says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. So even though a storm blows up, the disciples needed to have learned. Well, actually, Jesus has said we're going to the other side of the lake. So that's where we're going. It's like in the, uh, the psalm, the psalmist, um, uh, the psalmist writes that he took them He guided them to their desired haven. He guided them to their desired heaven. They got where they were supposed to go. Jesus said, we're going to the other side of the lake. So the first thing to think is, well, what has God said? What are the promises that God has made to me? As as one of his followers, what are the promises that God has made? Well, there there are hundreds of promises that God makes to us. Uh, The promise that God makes most frequently is, I will be with you. It's the most frequent promise that God makes throughout the Bible. I will be with you. Disciples have him in the boat with them. We may ask ourselves the question, well, well, hang on a moment. If God is so loving and so powerful, then why do we, why do we end up facing storms in our lives in the first place? And I'm sure, just looking around the room, and I'm sure for those of you online, you have not lived a storm-free life. You've gone through storms in life, times when you found yourselves in situations beyond your control, where you felt despair. Well, why does that happen? Well, there are a variety of reasons why we find ourselves caught up in storms. They all have a, they all kind of have the same root cause. The root cause of the storms in our life is the fact that our relationship with God has been broken. Because if God is loving and has created us for a relationship of love, then there has to be a choice that has to be free will. You can't have a relationship of love that is compulsory. 
A relationship of love has to involve the option to say, well, actually, no, I don't want this relationship and I'll turn from it. And all the storms that we face in life, one way or another, can be taken back to that starting point that there's a brokenness in the relationship that needs to be fixed. So some of the ways in which storms blow up in our lives, sometimes it's because we are, uh, well, basically we're stupid and, uh, and we're selfish and we just do stupid things. So we have too much to drink and get in our cars and drive into a ditch. Or we, uh, you know, we lose self-control and take out our anger on, you know, on another person. Sometimes storms of our, of our own making. Uh, all sorts of things that I could read. I'll just uh, a verse from Jeremiah uh, who spoke so profoundly to the Israelites in the Old Testament when they were, you know, they were on a path to chaos and destruction. And the, God speaks through the prophets uh, and uh, prophet Jeremiah, chapter 35 and verse 15, he says, again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you shall live in the land I've given you and your fathers. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. So sometimes storms of life are of our own making because we just ignore God and we do selfish, stupid things. Sometimes the storms of life blow up because our world is subject to decay. The brokenness of our relationship with God means that our world doesn't function in the way that it is supposed to. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And in um, Romans chapter 8, verse 20, he says, The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So Paul says creation is decaying. From the moment Adam and Eve rejected God, from the moment humankind said, actually, we don't want this relationship with God. We want to go our own way. Creation itself was subject to decay. And so we live in a world with um, natural disasters. We live in a world with illness and sickness and disease. And sometimes we're, uh, the storms of life revolve around sickness, illness, disease, the fact that our world is subject to decay. And sometimes the storms that we're caught up in are, are because of uh, evil, because of demonic attack. Uh, Jesus says in John's Gospel, ch chapter 10, verse 10, uh, speaking about Satan, the devil, he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. But there is a thief who comes only to steal, kill and destroy. So that's why we face storms in this life. Sometimes we create them ourselves. Sometimes they're because of the fact that creation is subject to decay. And sometimes it's because Satan is coming against us. And so sometimes when we find ourselves caught up in a storm, we have to work out, well, is this because of something I've done? Is it just because of the world I live in? Or is it a demonic attack? And that may help us to respond. But ultimately, the way in which we respond to the storms of life is through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says to the disciples. They wake him up. They say, Master, we're going to drown. Uh, he rebukes the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsides. And his question to them is, is, where is your faith? Where is your faith? 
So ultimately, if we want to rise above the storms of life, the things that come against us, we have to make sure, first of all, that we have Jesus alongside us. We have Jesus in the boat. And then we have to make sure that we're trusting in him, that we actually have, you know, to live by faith is simply to believe in the character of Jesus, to believe that he is Yahweh, to believe that he is the Lord God, to believe that he is good, to believe that his promises are true, that no matter what our circumstances, God is still good and he still loves us. And we hold on to that even in the midst of a storm. And it's a choice that we have to make. And faith is, it's like a muscle. The more you exercise faith, the stronger it becomes. So if you, in the smaller storms, you learn to put your hope and your trust in God, and then you come through that storm, then when you find yourselves in, in a bigger storm, uh, your faith muscle has grown stronger. But it comes down simply to believing that what God has said is true. That's the act of faith. So one of my, um, my favourite verses, and one of the ones I've so held on to in recent years, is uh, first in, again, in the letter that Paul writes to the Church of Rome, chapter 8, verse 28. And some of you are very familiar with this. Paul says, uh, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So faith is deciding whether or not that verse is true. You know, I said, you know, Jesus said uh, to the disciples, we're going to go to the other side of the lake. That's where we go. And they should have accepted. Jesus said, we're going to the other side of the lake. So even if a storm blows up, we're going to get to the other side of the lake. That's what God has said. So if God says through his word, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, my act of faith is deciding whether or not that is true and whether or not I want to substitute the word all with some and make it read. We know that in some things God works for the good of those who love him. So when life is going really, really well and everything is happy and the, you know, everything's rosy in the garden, God is working for my good. But when I'm in a storm, uh, God is obviously on holiday and doesn't care. That's not what Paul says, but that's sometimes what we think. We get caught up in a storm. We think, you know, where's it? But Paul says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Even in the storms, God is working for our good. Now, that's an act of faith, because when you're in the storm, you can't see it, and you have to choose to believe that it's true. Paul goes on, um, the next verse, he says, actually, what 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 God's real purpose and intention is that we should be conformed to the likeness of his son. God's ultimate aim is that we should become Christ-like. It's not, God's aim isn't that we should um, never have troubles in this life and never be disturbed in this life and never have storms. His aim is that we should become more like Christ. And my experience of the storms of life is that the storms have shaped me. The storms have changed me. When In the storms, when I've chosen to put my trust in 
Jesus and hang on to him, sometimes by my fingernails, the outcome has been that my character has changed and my trust in God has changed and I've become a bit more Christ-like because that's what God is aiming for. But that's what faith looks like in the storm, choosing to believe that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And so it comes down to a, you know, our choice. It comes down to doing the research and understanding that, yes, Jesus, he is Yahweh. As Paul writes in another of his letters to the church in church to the Colossians, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus is Yahweh. I'm going to trust in that and I'm going to believe that. Um, some of you know, um, five years ago, I was just caught up in just a real um, storm of life. And some of you be familiar with the circumstances of that. And it was, it was just a, a really testing and desperate uh, season of life where, you know, the, I've said before, you know, there were days where I just, I didn't know whether I was going to get through one day into the next. I was just in such uh, emotional pain and such despair. And one of the things that I did during that season was I, I literally printed out, I, I have it here because I still have it in, um, in my office, I just, I printed out a selection of uh, Bible verses and at the top, you might remember, see, it just says, remember today these things that are true. Remember today these things that are true. And I just printed out a whole load of um, scriptures and promises that God has made. Uh, I won't read them all out, but the, the first one was, it was the psalm. I think we read it last Sunday, Psalm 121. I look to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel never slumbers or sleeps. And literally every morning, almost sometimes through gritted teeth, I read through these scriptures and chose to believe that they were true. And that's simply what faith is. It's simply to believe that God is who he said he is and that he's faithful. Um, the last verse at the bottom, it just says, um, so I read through all of those, and it says, and don't forget, um, and it's a verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So the disciples in the boat are terrified because they think they're going to drown. And actually what they need to do is take captive that fear and that terror take and think, well, actually, we've got Jesus in the boat with us. And this Jesus is the one who is bigger than the storm. And that's what they discover. And that's what they begin to learn. And it's this, um, you know, the penny starts to drop. Well, actually, this is what the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 107. And the psalmist wrote about Yahweh Jesus is Yahweh. So when Jesus says to the disciples, where is your faith? He's simply saying, you know, learn to believe in who I am. And it's the same for us. Uh, there's a lovely quote from, um, some of you may know this, from Corrie ten Boom, a wonderful Christian lady who went through the horrors of uh, the Nazi concentration camps. And um, 
uh, and then spent the rest of her life um, speaking a message of, of peace and reconciliation. But she went through, you know, uh, you, you don't get a much greater storm than, you know, a Nazi concentration camp. And that she, in the midst of that horror, she knew the peace and the love and the promises of God. Uh, and she said this uh, one point after she said, when you're going through, when you're on a train and you go through a tunnel and it all goes dark, uh, you don't jump off. You put your trust in the driver until you come through the other end of the tunnel. And that's simply what faith is. When it all goes dark, you don't abandon God and jump off. You trust that God is the same. And I can guarantee you this. Um, if you are not in a storm at the moment, you have been through one and you will go through another one. So if you're not in one at the minute, you have been through them. And there are more to come. And we simply have to make a choice about, well, what are we going to do when those storms come along? Are we going to continue to trust in the character and the presence and the promises of Jesus? So let's just take um, a, just a few moments of quiet, a few moments of reflection. And it may be this morning... Either if you're, if you're here with us in the building or if you're watching online, it may be that you, are, you find yourself in the midst of a storm that is raging. Or it may be where you can see one coming up ahead. And the Lord wants you to know, he wants us to know, that his promise is to be with us. And he's inviting us today to ask him into the boat that we're travelling in at the moment, if we can continue with that analogy. The most important thing is to make sure that Jesus is with us in the boat. So we'll just take a few moments of quiet. Allow the Lord by his spirit to, uh, to speak to us by his Holy Spirit, to comfort us, to be present to us, to strengthen our faith this morning.